More than half of all companies globally are family-owned or operated. Family businesses contribute 70% of the world's GDP and account for 65% of jobs. Their voices are important. Their stories must be told. Brought to you by the award-winning publication, Tharavat Magazine. This is the Family Business Voice with your host, Ramya Elagami. Okabashi, sustainable family footwear. When in the late 1970s, the Iranian revolution took hold, shoemaker and businessman Rahim Irvani was forced to leave his home country and start over elsewhere. Rahim brought his skills and experience to the USA, placed his hopes in the country's business-friendly reputation and built the footwear company Okabashi Brands from the ground up. When other American firms in the industry began outsourcing, Irvani decided to swim against the tide. He kept production in the USA, betting everything on quality and sustainability. We sat down with third-generation CEO of Okabashi, Sara Irvani, to talk about the importance of values in her family business and the unique vision that keeps her focused on the future. Enjoy this episode. Well, Sarah, this is a particular pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time to doing this interview with us. Without further ado, let's make this all about your story, really. Like, I mean, if you, if you wouldn't mind telling us a little bit more about the family business to start with, that would be amazing. Of course. And please interrupt along the way. I don't think uh, monologues are fun for anyone. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> so, um, Buford, Georgia, which is this sort of small, quintessential Americana town, um, about 40 minutes north of Atlanta, was started in 1870. And it was one of the major tannery centers in the US. And this is really when they had totally different economy than it is now. And so it was one of the major saddle areas. And with the scrap leather, they would make shoes. And so already there was this sort of the sense of using things in not quite closed loop, but that spirit even before any of these modern notions really became developed. And then that footwear industry took off. And, and even in the 1930s, the football team there was called the Shoemakers. And then the economy did what it did. And fast forwarding to 1981, and a fire actually took over and uh, wiped out all of those factories. And they decided not to rebuild in the end, but quite sad. And then in a very parallel universe, my grandfather had been um, really the largest shoe manufacturer in Iran. And in 1979, not because we've ever really been a political family, but because of well, this is what happens in revolutions, um, the company got nationalized. And so really when thinking about, well, what, what to do, what to start over with, and really looking forward rather than looking back, said, okay, you know, shoes. There's this area and sort of a, a funny combination of coincidences got my grandfather to look at Buford, Georgia, which uh, when there are other places, maybe like Paris and London, all these other cities to, to end up in Buford, Georgia. And then, <laughs> this is life, you know, you beauty of life where you can never really predict where the next stage will go. And you don't necessarily even always see the beauty in it until down the line, three or four stages later. So then they end up in Buford, Georgia. And so in a way where the sort of continuation of footwear being made in the U.S., you know, at that point, manufacturing in the U.S. was very different to what it is now. 
about 60% of shoes that were worn in the US were made in the US. And now it's around 1%. So, I mean, that's really such a transformation. And then in the 90s, when all of this movement was really going towards offshore, all of the competition sort of getting less expensive, our materials getting more expensive because our materials were made in USA. And so perhaps the obvious choice for someone else would be, okay, well, let's join this movement. Let's join this trend. But quality is something that's very important to us and, and really to my father as well. And so having the factory less than an hour away from where he lived, where he could easily go and really see what's going on, what his name is associated with. I mean, if you're manufacturing out of somewhere that you need to fly a day to get to a whole different time zone, a whole different language. There's no way that you can really be sure what goes on, what goes in the materials, how are people treated all under your name. And so the commitment was made to stay there to the team and to say, no, we've started this together. We're going to go forward together. And um, really to this day, we, so many people today, why do you manufacture in the US? And I think that that fundamental commitment, which is a basis of really at that time, just as much values as it was a rational reason. And I think that's something that also family businesses can afford to do, which is, is that long-termism view. We thought, well, what do we do? So what you have to do in a business is you have to look where the cost basis is. And if you have some um, cost basis in your material, well, what if you can do more with your material? And we do injection molding. And even if you make every single shoe perfectly, which is uh, statistically improbable, you will lose about 10% of your weight through runners and other things. So in most normal circumstances, that would go immediately to a land. But then we realized, well, if we can regrind it and reuse it and start our own internal closed loop, well, then all the better. And we're more competitive and we will be stronger as made in USA still. We also had a value of not wanting to waste things. No one wants to put out waste in the world. And so that was really that start in the 90s of sustainability. And then, you know, in the 2000s, consumers would, um, would be interested as well in this. And, and people were starting to ask, you know, where are my things made? How are my things made? Who is making them? And um, so he said, well, hey, we're doing this. If you want, you can send your shoes back to us as well. We'll give you a discount to sort of, bring that closed loop process, not just internally, but really for that product life cycle. And this was really before any notion of circular economy was in the newspapers or anything like that. It's just the way that we did things. So Sarah, like you, you very gallantly glossed over your own <laughs> joining, like how you joined and why you joined. Like, let's dive a little bit deeper into your own personal story now that we know more about where your family's motivation has come from. Tell us a little bit more about like, you know, how when you were growing up, you perceived the family business. And if for you, it has always been sort of in the back of your mind that it was there as a career opportunity. As with any family business, when you are at the dining table, you, you talk about businesses. I think if you grow up in a family of doctors, you will talk about medicine and the advances of medicine and different things that happen and the same thing with family businesses this is what we so often live and breathe so as a little girl I would go and shadow my father tinker about in the factory and think that I was helping but really making probably a, a big mess and disruption and so 
always sort of been involved and, and deeply exposed to it. And if there was ever a question that my father was grappling with, he would always pose it to all of us and say, well, what do you think? We were all four already exposed to, to the questions that arise. So in that sense, I think that always knew that I wanted to go into business and, and really I'm a big believer in the impact that business can make. Sometimes I wake up before my alarm clock and you think, well, I've got this amazing opportunity, but I also have a, a meaningful responsibility to the, all the team that I work with. You did your education. I went to a, a school in England from 13 to 18. And then um, undergraduate studies at UVA, studying philosophy, looking at both contemporary ethics, but really focusing on philosophy of language and how we understand metaphor. And, you know, I always knew that I wanted to go into business. If you know that that's something that you want to do, it's important to also stretch your mind and learn how to think as well and not just focus, okay, let me learn my maths, let me learn my Excel. You really need to learn how to think creatively. And I think philosophy was not only very interesting, but extremely useful in ways that I'm only maybe even now appreciating. And then um, after that, I went and did strategy consulting in uh, Zurich and in New York, focusing on innovation and also private equity. A little bit in the retail space, but really more learning well, someone would come to you and they would say, we have a business. We want to grow the business significantly. We don't want to invest anything into it. Tell us how. <laughs> and sort of almost ridiculous questions. And I think that experience teaches you, A, how to work 100-hour weeks if it's necessary. Hopefully it's not always. But that stamina and that endurance that is sometimes necessary. B, it taught me how to break down really complex problems into very specific work streams in this role that I have now that's been so useful because when you sort of take over a role as I have there's no guidebook it's really up to you to say this is where we've been going and these are our values and this is what we're continuing doing and this is how we're going to break it down I mean you've got to create the roadmap and you've got to also create buy-in from the team to, to, to get us there I remember I was on um, a case and our client sponsor wanted us to change some assumptions in our model to get to a specific result. This really shocked me. And maybe it's because I had studied ethics and philosophy. I just think this is not right. You can't change your assumptions, even if it's just a financial model based on what you want the result to be. No, my job is to tell you with my analysis what I think. And so I realized then that I need to bolster my education with a master's of finance so that I would always know what questions to ask. One will never know all the answers, but if you can get a sense of what questions to ask, you're on much better footing. And so I went to Cambridge where my father studied as well and I always wanted to, to go there. So it's a nice opportunity. And so I did my master's of finance there and then went and did um, venture capital on both the investment and on the operations perspective, learning both what I liked and what I didn't like. I've also seen what happens when you don't run a company according to a strong set of values and how that impacts morale. And at the end of the day, how that impacts the viability of the business. I mean, business needs to have a, 
a soul and a values and a purpose and you know i think legally in the states a lot of people consider corporations to have the same responsibilities as people well you need to have the same values as well after that i, I went and did my mba i mean it was just shortly after that that i i sort of took on this so how did that conversation go between you and your father how, how did it happen it's more sort of come and really see what we're doing now and really deep dive. And I spent about six weeks going through everything, all operations, all the financials, meeting everyone. And then I really was thinking, well, this is what the company I think could do. This is almost the vision of the company. And I think it was that discussion with him of, of what that potential is down the road and with everything around sustainability and local and really thinking about it, that I sort of, I just got so excited. I said, okay, well, someone's got to make this a reality. Let me try. I think in order to try something like that, it's sometimes easier to make fundamental changes than it is to make incremental changes. And that's, I think, why it made sense for me to come into my role of course it rings in a totally new era right like i'm assuming so a young female ceo taking over from the second generation patriarch it makes sense that that would send a message of change right so so i took on my role and my father is non-executive chairman but you know i actually live in new york and i'm in the factory four days a week so and i've been sort of doing this commute for 18 months now but when i'm in atlanta i stay um, with my parents. And I think what's really important in any business, especially family business, is good communication. So I think that speaking to my parents proactively, I mean, it's almost as if I have a board meeting four days a week. And so I keep them apprised of where I'm going, what we want to do, what the progress has been. In uh, any transition, I think that's helpful for both sides. I think that as, as good as it is for a company to say, okay, we're going to go here and, and to be clear, I think that it's also important that you look to those who know the organization so well in every level of the company and to really understand from their experiences. What was the reality like for you once you joined the founding business? Because I think from the outside, of course, like while you were having your other jobs, living abroad, etc., you must have had an image of what the family business is like somehow in the back of your mind. And so when you came in and you actually were confronted with operations, were there things that surprised you? Yeah, so from any outside position, one can sympathize, but to empathize is always more challenging. And I think that there's no better way to empathize than to actually be in that situation. And so perhaps I underestimated the emotional side of really saying, well, this is the continuation. I've got this emotional responsibility to make sure that it thrives, that it doesn't just continue as it was at, at a good level, but it really really reaches its potential. And I really think that that's at a very high watermark. And also to a team as well, you know, you, you work so closely with the team and it's different, I think, than when you're in someone else's corporation and sort of from that experience. 
you start to love your team. Your team becomes your family. And we really talk about this Okobashi family. And I think that puts a weightiness on your decisions that if you are making the exact same decisions in a non-family business, that gravitas wouldn't be there. I think that feeling is very hard to communicate unless you feel it. It's just like falling in love, you know? It's a different feeling, but you can read Jane Austen all the time, but until you really fall in love, then you know what it feels like, and then you understand the poetry. And I feel like, well, once you take over this responsibility, then you feel that sort of the poetry of the, the challenges and the opportunities, and it, it's a total gestalt shift. I think it's very well put, and uh, I think everyone who's part of a family business would entirely understand what you're talking about. What direction are you taking, Okabashi? And like, you know, how much is it different from what you guys used to do? And To look forward, you need to look back. And you need to say, okay, well, what have we been doing? Your two questions really relate because we've been diving in and saying, well, what are our values? What does made in USA really mean? And historically, not just on ourselves, but for many manufacturing companies, Made in USA has been an emotive pull. Well, we really thought deeper and said, well, okay, how is that then different to a super ethical company who manufactures somewhere else in a proper way? The sort of almost Socratic method, which we've turned upon ourselves, has got us to thinking, well, actually, Made in USA on the environmental side means a much lower carbon footprint. It also means that we are empowered to do a circular economy where we can have shoes shipped back to us and we can really look at them from the birth and then at the end of the product life cycle and keep them going, which you can't do when you're shipping things all the way across the ocean in a linear one direction way. And then I think also on that sustainable front, it's about looking at next generation materials about being the leader there, um, whether it's our bio-based material, which is 45% soy and, and really working on a lot of innovation there. Combining these strong elements of the company, which resonate with two strong macro trends. So it's about developing that and then also showing people that it's possible. I mean, a lot of people, when they think about made in USA, they think expensive. And a lot of people, when they think about sustainable, they think unattractive or sort of some esoteric aesthetic. And for us, it's about, no, we can democratize made in USA. We can democratize sustainability and wellness sort of through the design of our shoes at a very accessible price point. So I think that in terms of that vision of, of where we want to go and those changes that we're making, it's about really becoming that leader and that go-to about if you want a sustainable local footwear option, of course, talk to Bashi. What we see, though, is like, you know, the sustainability label is being bandied around with a lot of ease these days. I don't think I've spoken to a company over the last few years that has not liked to call itself sustainable. For 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 you guys, though, it seems that from the very beginning of your journey, it's been such a, a, a natural thing to do, right? Like you talked to us about already having sort of like cyclical models in the 90s when everyone was actually going towards a much less waste conscious production. So what are the points where you and your family sort of like get a little bit annoyed when people use the word sustainability, right? You worry like, okay, well, 
you know, there are certain boxes that you need to tick for it to actually count and for it to actually matter when you say that. From a pioneering perspective, what is it those boxes are? And also, how can businesses really, truly make a commitment and not just put the word into the vision and, and, and that's basically it? I'll start with your second question first. I think that in order to really stick to something, sustainable doesn't need to just reflect the environmental or the social elements of your business. The business model itself needs to be sustainable. For us, our being sustainable and having this closed loop also helps us from a business perspective because we're saving our own material. We're bringing it back into our system. And so I think having those elements will anchor that sustainability and ensure that it continues into perpetuity. And I think that that is important to really say, why is this company sustainable? And why does it make sense for them? And then if you understand that emotion, you can understand the motivation and the future of those actions. Most flip-flops are a standard foam sheet that people cut out and the scraps are all immediately to the landfill or to the oceans. And then you have this notion of disposability where after one summer season, you've worn your flip-flops, they're gross, and you're going to put them probably in the trash can where they end up in the oceans or the landfills forever. And that idea of disposability, I think that right now a lot of people have really been looking at the beginning of the product life cycle, but they're only just starting to look at the end. And I think it's really about looking holistically and realizing that it's complex. I think that your average consumer today might not necessarily have the attention span to be explained every nuance of sustainability. So a lot of brands are just focusing on one element and saying, okay, well, we'll be sustainable in this parameter without looking at a holistic one. Unfortunately today, it's still a definite, oh, wow, to see a woman at your age be the CEO of a third generation family business. Now, I don't like that fact. You don't like that fact. I don't think we ever like actually having to talk about it because to many of us who are in the situation, it is so normal. However, um, we also know that there are a lot of women out there in and around their family businesses who'd like to gain leadership positions and who are struggling for obvious reasons because, well, let's face it, family business uh, used to be quite a boys club until fairly recently. I always feel like, you know, how the women in a family business can gain access to opportunities, etc., is usually, to a large extent, not just a reflection of their own competency, but of the general attitude of the men in their families, right? Like, so how do the men in their families encourage them, support them, etc.? So I was just wondering if you wouldn't mind elaborating a little bit on, say, like, you know, how your father and how maybe your brothers and how your mom, how they have supported you in making this transition, and whether gender has ever been something that has been a discussion point to your family and what you see in other families? I think that as well as, of course, confidence, competence and experience and all of these different elements playing a role, I think that confidence plays a really big role and just being able to see yourself in certain positions. And I think that a lot of women I know don't necessarily have that confidence of saying, I can do this. I can go out there and I can achieve my vision. And I think that it's not only your immediate family that I think is essential to give that support. If you're married, it's essential that your husband does too. 
And if I think about a lot of what I've been doing, I credit my husband for saying, yes, go for it, fulfill your potential. Everyone will give you an opportunity to some extent. And I think it's about really working hard and working smart at each point to prove yourself. And I think I think you've raised a very interesting point in terms of the support of partners as well. I think something that I agree with you does not get um, mentioned enough in the family business discussion. So like how they can help you uh, achieve that goal, uh, sometimes in spite of maybe even your own family that owns the business, right? Like there's a lot of encouragement required to also face them. Yes. And for anyone married to an entrepreneur, I think that the partner is so important. That's who you turn to, that's who can lift you up and that's who can understand that journey. It's interesting at this point to ask this question, maybe because I do feel that your notion of success is very varied and, and, and encompasses many different areas of your life. If we look at your family business, though, like, and you, you know, you taking this on from your dad and talking to him about where you want to take this, what are your measures of success in your family business? I want to consistently increase the quality of life of my team. I really want people to be able to think I want something responsibly made and or I want something made in USA. It's 100% possible to do in an attractive way, financially and brand wise, and that there is an option there. If I'm able to remake this market, I'll consider myself successful. And if I'm able to provide meaningful opportunity for my team, I'll also be really happy. Is it very important to you today in your own feeling that this remain a family business? Like how high on the priority list is that to you and your and your family? As someone who grew up being able to come to the factory and be involved and understand the questions, I would like to afford that opportunity to my future children as well. We've launched a brand called Third Oak, which is Third Oak because it's number three recyclable, third generation shoemakers and because we care for the environment, starting with the oaks outside of our factory, that's a big forest, it would be pretty cool to, to have a fourth oak brand one day. I don't think I could have ended this interview on a better note, to be honest with you. This is exactly where we're going to cut. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm second generation of my own family business, and I, I can relate to so many of the things that you've said. And it's just, it's really beautiful to learn from you. And thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for listening to the Family Business Voice. Subscribe to our channels now on iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher or Spotify to be notified of our weekly episodes.